there's all the self-doubt creeps in and go, what is this rubbish? And you have to get through the mucky middle and then you have to resolve it all. It comes in waves and stuff, but I think the discipline element's really important because if you only wrote when you felt that you had something to say, you probably would only write a third of the time. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I hope you're having a great week, writing and otherwise. We have a fabulous guest on the podcast today, someone who's been on before, and also a continuation of some of the d- issues that I was discussing last week in my chat with Sasha Wosley. Before we get on to today's guest and topic, I wanted to share with you a few things that I've come across lately on socials. So one is a fabulous series of reels that author, publisher, previously an agent, uh, yoga teacher, she's just an all-around Renaissance woman, Sophie Green is doing on Instagram. Sophie's had some fabulous books out in the last couple of years. She started doing these little reels on Instagram where she just talks for a couple of minutes, not even that, probably a minute, just about something that she's learnt about writing. And it's they're like little writerly advice sessions. So things like, why do you actually write? But Sophie expresses that in a much um, more thoughtful way. But anyway, I just thought, She's someone to follow on Instagram. She is doing these great reels and she has a wealth of experience in writing and publishing and agenting. So Sophie Green is definitely someone I recommend you following on Instagram. Also wanted to point out a fabulous interview, if you haven't caught it yet, on the Writers Book Club with the wonderful Michelle Barraclough. She's done a really great interview with Tony Jordan recently. All of the episodes are fabulous where Michelle and an author do a deep dive into one of their books And Tony's most recent book, Dinner with the Schnabels, is the subject matter of the discussion with Michelle and Tony. And certainly after listening to the interview, I definitely want to, I've actually ordered the book to take away on holidays with me next week. But there is so much in there. Tony is a fabulous writer and a fabulous writing teacher. And she gives some great insight in the interview with Michelle about dinner with the Schnabels and her writing process for it. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from listening to Tony and maybe even going back and having a look at the book and then seeing how she's done it. That's another recommended one. And the third thing I would like to recommend to you that I've listened to recently, which really rang some bells for me, was a chat on the self-publishing show. So that's the Mark Dawson podcast, the self-publishing formula show. I think it's just the self-publishing show with Murray Force. So it's between James Blatch, the, the host of the show, and author Murray Force. I don't know if you're familiar with Murray, Marie Force. She has actually written 93 books. She's heading towards 100 books. She is quite a fast writer and she is someone who made it big in indie publishing quite a few years back. She writes series, they're romance books, 
and she's quite renowned in the romance community for prolificness, if that's a word. I don't think it is, but there you go. You know what I mean. And also just her, uh, she's great at sharing her experience. And, and certainly in this interview, it was a real insight into her writing process, even if you're not someone that writes super fast, and I'm certainly not. You get an insight into how it's been possible for Mari to so many books, to have this great career where she is publishing a lot of books. She's making a full-time living out of it. She's doing really well. And some things that she speaks about in the video and things that we all know, but it's just when you hear, okay, this is the way a really successful author does it. And so, for example, she's not a plotter. She just writes and sees what happens. She talks about her habits a lot in this interview with James Blatch. She doesn't go to bed unless she's written 2,000 words, and that's every day of the year pretty much. And she's also built walking as a habit into her regime, into her routine. So I found it really inspiring. It made me think about this idea of not going to bed before writing 2,000 words, and I did start that, but unfortunately I'm not as disciplined as Mari. And, um, but what it did for me, it was it's made me write at least something every day and it's kept me really in touch with the manuscript that I'm working on. And the other thing was that I've done a little bit of lately, which I found has worked really well, is writing last thing at night when I'm actually in bed, even if it's just a paragraph or two, putting it away and then writing again first thing in the morning. So you're tapping into those two times when your brain is probably at a higher creative frequency, lower stress frequency maybe, and tapping more into your subconscious. And it's staying with you overnight in some form in your sleep. So anyway, that's something that's working for me at the moment. So I just wanted to share that uh, and recommend those podcasts and reels to you on Instagram. So on to today's episode. As I said, it's the second in this sort of two-part focus. They're both authors who have new releases. So Sasha, I spoke to last week, had a car- has a caravan like a canary out. That's her quite recent release. And we talked on in that episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, it's a great one to listen to. Sasha is a wealth of information about writing as well. And really interesting to her, hear her experiences in going into the second or a new phase of her writing career. My guest today, Meredith Jaffe, has really done the same thing over the last couple of years. She's moved into what I see, and and she agrees in this chat, is really a new phase. It's not that she's writing radically different types of books, but she's with a new publisher. There's been a break for her between uh, her first two published adult books and then the book that came out last year, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, published by HarperCollins. And Meredith has recently had a new release, The Tricky Art of Forgiveness, which is a fabulous book about, you know, a woman at a major turning point in her life in her 50s and what happens in terms of her relationships and her life. I spoke to Meredith in this interview about the writing of that book. And you may also remember that Meredith was on the podcast not so long ago uh, interviewing Genevieve Novak as a guest host. And she's been on the podcast before as the founder and director of StoryFest the fabulous writing uh, festival that I was part of in its uh, inaugural form on the South Coast a couple of years ago. So Meredith is someone who also has a lot of experience in at writing. She has gone into this new stage and it's just really interesting to hear her talk about what it's like to work with a different publisher, to now be on the book a year a schedule, which obviously brings about some changes in the way that you write and the way that you manage your time. So we talk about that in the interview as well. And I just thought even though they're writing different sorts of styles of books, there were some interesting similarities between Sasha's experience over the last few years and Meredith's. So there's lots of food for thought in here for writers and some really great, I think, 
inspiring advice as well that Meredith shares about obviously the things that work for her, but then we can perhaps try out and then take on board as well. So grab a cuppa, join Meredith Jaffe and myself on the Rights for Women Convo Couch as we talk about the tricky art of forgiveness and her new direction in writing. So Meredith, welcome back to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you so much for having me back again. Yeah, lovely. Last time you were on just a couple of weeks ago was as guest host with Genevieve Novak, and that was fabulous. Thank you very much. Wasn't she gorgeous? She's just lovely, and I love that book. It was such a joy. I was actually a little bit jealous I wasn't doing the interview myself, but thank you for stepping in because, as we know, uh, the weekly schedule with the podcast is a little bit you know, onerous, so it's great to have yeah, you and others stepping in to help. My pleasure. So today, though, we're going to talk about The Tricky Art of Forgiveness, your new release, and also get onto your writing career and how that's uh, evolved and the direction that it's currently taking. So The Tricky Art is a fabulous book, and it was one that I could really relate to in terms of the, the age of the characters, the stage of the relationships. So maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about that to start with what the book is about. Which is probably the hardest question in the world to answer for any writer because, you know, you spend 100,000 words trying to figure out what the book's about. But ostensibly it sprang from the fact that I was coming up or am coming up to 20 years of marriage, but I'm on my second marriage and I've got a lot of friends who have kids who are a little bit older. So I've got like a 31-year-old, but I've also got teens. And, you know, I was intrigued by how the sort of Some women were really, oh, I can't wait to be an empty nester and no more mum's taxi, no more dinner on the table every night, no more 50 million loads of washing, yada, yada. And then some women really struggled with it. And I have a one of my daughter's friend's mum in particular had four kids. And when the last one left, got in four foreign students to, to fill the oh, bedrooms because really? she was so used to having kids around and she couldn't bear it. And this is a career woman. It wasn't like she was sitting at home baking cookies and twiddling yeah. a thumb type thing. So I was really fascinated about that aspect to it. And I was also really interested because my husband, I don't know about other women, I'm, in, I'm 57, so other women around my age, when they're talking with their partners, talk, we, we're starting to talk about what will we do when the kids are gone, what will we do when you're retired. Obviously, as a writer, I won't retire. I'll be found with a massive heart attack propped on my <laughs> laptop at some determinant age, hopefully 30 years from now. But yeah, all those kind of questions are coming up. And then simultaneously, I was reading a lot on those Facebook book club groups about all these women complaining nicely, of course, complaining nicely that women our age are so often portrayed in novels, in fiction as either invisible or only looking forward to having grandchildren or like kind of some sort of sort of diminished human being, whereas the women I know in real life are completely the opposite and women are embracing new opportunities. Yes, they might be travelling. Yes, they might have grandkids, but they're equally looking at, well, who the hell am I now that I'm not someone's mother, wife, etc., etc. So once you start stripping off all the labels, who am I and who do I actually want to be? And so 
from all of these sort of various inputs, which anyone who's a writer out there will know that there's never just one singular trigger, I, I had all of that going on. So I really wanted to create this amazing character who had, had everything going for her ostensibly, of course, otherwise it would be a very boring novel, and is navigating that sort of crossover period between being someone something and then trying to figure out who she wants to be. But interestingly, the trigger for the whole novel came out of this really weird little image that I had in my head when I would I drive past my local cinema and I never go to the cinema because that would be an absolute waste of my two hours when I could be writing. So, you know, that's how my brain works. Not like it might be good for me to go <laughs> to the cinema. <laughs> but anyway, be that as it may. And I had this image of this woman sitting in front of me in the cinema, but I couldn't see who she was, but she was on her own and the cinema really only had one other person in it and so clearly not the 10 o'clock session. And I was wondering why she was there and why she was on her own. And every time I drove past the cinema, she'd come back to me and i go, yeah. so I had this whole thing in my head about who is this woman and, and why is she alone, where is the people who love her. So there was these two completely different ideas in my head, which obviously if you've read the novel, you know, are married up, pardon the pun, in the storyline. So that's not really telling you what the story's about, but that's what, well, it is in terms of story, not so much plot. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. This, no, this happened, then that happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, there are a few things in there we have to be careful, and I imagine you've had to be a bit careful with some of your chats about giving spoilers away too because there's a couple of things in there that I think if you don't know going in, it, it makes for a much better reading experience. So we will be careful about that. But Diana is this 50-something woman. She's very accomplished she's smart she's intelligent she's got the two kids lovely ostensibly as you say this lovely family but she also has this very sad lonely streak doesn't she that comes mm. out at her age and historically as well there is that feeling of aging and, and the, the sense that she's lost her youth but there's a lot of other grief and loss in the book and without spoilers is that something you can talk about in terms of the story I think you don't get to our age without bringing the baggage. Obviously, we all deal with grief and loss in our life in different ways, and, and that's personality-driven as much as what's actually gone wrong. And I'm really interested in unresolved grief, and I wanted to create Diana to be, you know, seemingly when you first embark on reading the novel, the girl who's got it all. She's sexy, she's charming, she's droll. She's a fabulous musician. She teaches at the local school. But she's, as you say, and I'm really glad you picked up on it, that she's really lonely. Her husband, Will, for all his wonderful charms, he is the head of a family business. He's on the road all the time. So, as you find out in the novel, Diana spent a large chunk of her life doing the heavy lifting on the family front so, to allow him to travel. And I grew up in a family like that. And there were times in my husband's career where, quite frankly, he wouldn't have been able to do his job if I'd said, well, stuff it. I'm not picking up there doing all that stuff while you go swanning about for weeks at a time. And I know a lot of women like that. And women, it's always, not always, sorry, I shouldn't say always, most of the time it's women who make those kind of sacrifices, the economic sacrifices to enable the bigger picture, the whole family to benefit from, from that person working so hard. But now she's at an age, she's 55, where she's going, well, how much longer is this going on? I don't have the same distractions that I had when the kids were little. I'm constantly having to adjust my schedule around what where you are and what you're doing. And quite frankly, 
all the money in the world doesn't make up for the fact that we're supposed to be in a relationship, except you're absent pretty much most of the time. And so that loneliness for her really, uh, one of the characters I really enjoyed inventing was Samantha, the beauty therapist. And she spends a lot of time at the beauty salon, which initially you think, oh, she's so vain. But it isn't actually the vanity that drives her there. It's the need for connection. It's the need like Samantha's the only other person apart from her husband who actually touches her with any tenderness it might be a facial it might be a manicure it might be a pedicure but there's a lot more to uh to that that drive to constantly be we all like getting not all most of us like getting facials and manicures and pedicures but Diana's obsession to be on top of of her physical looks is partly driven by her vanity she admits she's a bit vain she's always been a very good looking woman but it's more I think the deeper driver is that loneliness and even though she has friendship groups that we it takes the reader needs to get into the second half of the novel to really drill down into why she's feeling that way at the beginning of the novel she's just bitching about the fact it's like she keeps leaving in little newspaper articles and magazine articles about late life crises and what are you going to do when you retire and all this kind of like kind of nudging trying to nudge will into a direction because she's thinking if I'm just going to spend the next 30 years with this guy and have this kind of connection or lack of connection with him that's not really going to make me all that Mm. happy and Mm. maybe I need to as much as I love my husband and that was another thing I thought was really interesting that you can love someone and you live with someone for 20 30 40 50 years then in a way you're all part of the furniture but is that a good enough reason to stay in the relationship if you're unfulfilled and you're not finding any joy in life yeah she's definitely someone and I think this is true of a lot of women who fall into that role of being the primary caregiver for children and often give up their careers to some extent or give up things that they really would love to do for themselves. And there's that sense of that loss of control and loss of Mm -hmm. over life. And she's someone, I I read her as someone who's now gotten to the point where she's really reassessing all that and thinking, yeah, maybe I have made some mistakes along the way, but, you know, what now type thing. And don't you notice, though, in your friendship group, how many women are suddenly, once they've got free of all these commitments that they have taken on willingly, not necessarily understanding what 30 years of parenting looks like, Mm. for instance, but how often women blossom in their 50s and 60s once those pressures are taken off them and they're allowed to please themselves, be a bit selfish. If they want to do a yoga class at 6.30 on a Tuesday night, well, hang it, they will, because they don't have to get dinner on the table or they don't have to pick someone up from footy training or all those kind of things. So I think there's a, you know, there's the flip side of that as well. It's just that Diana is the character, is the one who's a little bit bereft without all those usual anchors in her life, as opposed to some of her friends who are embracing uh, this change over time. What was the writing process like for this one, Meredith? Because you're, I guess that brings me to the the second lot of questions I want to ask you during this interview, which is about this re-blooming of your career. It's actually quite apt in talking about Diana's re-blooming because you're really in, in the second act, I feel, of your writing career where with the book that came out last year, The Dressmakers of Yarandara Prison, it almost felt like a debut novel in some regards because it had such a great splash. You were with a new publisher and a change in direction for you in terms of style. But how has the writing of The Tricky Art of Forgiveness been compared to Yarandara? Because you did have a lot longer to spend on that one, didn't you? 
Yes, well, that's the advantage of having a gap a gap between publishers is that you do have more time to work on a manuscript. As we all know, deadlines are a bit of a double-edged sword. They're wonderful to keep your bum in the seat and writing. And sometimes if you don't have a contract, a book under contract, it can feel a bit like time can just spin out into as long as you want it to. But equally, deadlines can be an absolute curse. They hang over you like a lodestone. Loads of yeah. You have to get this done. So yes, they were very different processes. I think also, but what if you look at say the gap between the making of Christina and the dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison? It's about four years, but there was a lot of rewriting of dressmakers going on with the publisher that it ended up with. So there was a lot of there was two massive structural edits on that, which should have taken me a lot less time than they did. But because I was off contract, I'd taken on other commitments like the director of Story Fest and stuff like that. So it, my writing time was much more was much less than it would have been, you know, if I had no other commitments. And I feel that. Dressmakers really benefited from that sort of almost three rounds of structural edit before we really... But once the contract was signed, Dressmakers was from contract signing to publication only about nine months, which is very short as you publish in terms. And uh, with... With the tricky art, I wanted to go back to doing, trying to do a better plan for the novel. I'd done a plan with The Fence, which was the one that was first published, but actually the second one written. So like with The Making of Christina, that was nine and a half years from picking up the pen to publication. With The Fence, I actually wrote it in a month, which I just had to because I was on a really tight deadline with that one. And it was published within a 15-month framework and then four years for dressmakers. And then it was only 12 months between publishing, well, actually less than 12 months. It ended up being 10 months between publishing dressmakers and the tricky art. And so I had to have a plan, I felt, in order to get that done in such a short period of time and look I'm a bit I'm a bit of a mixed bag on pantsing versus planning I think at my heart I'm probably a pantser but I do see that the benefit of some planning is that it gives you a bit of structure and a bit of direction you don't have to color in all the lines but if at least if you go these are my key scenes and this is how it needs to end up or this is how it needs to start or whatever like to at least have an outline Mm. um certainly aids the process of writing. But with the tricky art, I wrote a full plan. It was 30,000 words. And that meant that I literally sat down. And that was fun. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Writing a plan that's that detailed was a lot of fun. It is, and that benefit of doing that is all your structural issues pretty much are ironed out in that process when it's really easy to cut and paste and kind of go, oh, no, it needs another scene or whatever. And then you just sit down and write it. Sorry, that was um, following along the lines of Sophie Hannah's knocky job, wasn't it? Yeah because I've had Sophie on the podcast and she talked about the knocking draft and and having this quite detailed plan which has the whole sort Mm. of storyline and structure of the story mapped out, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't, I have to say, solve all your problems. There were no real structural issues with the tricky art. There was a lot of issues around getting deeper into character and, you know, those kind of things. But there's always something structural. And, like, for instance, the one I'm writing at the moment, I didn't have time to write a full-on 30,000 word, but I did at least map out who was who in the zoo and get a feel for what was going on. So I'm a bit ambivalent about, like, which is better. I enjoy the pantsing more maybe. But, yeah, anyway, it is what it is. Everyone's different. So it, Tricky Art was produced in such a t- short time frame that there was 
like it was almost relentless. As you know yourself as a published writer, there's a lot more that goes on than just the editing. There's all the mm. book design stuff and there's all the all sorts of stuff basically yeah. <laughs> that you have to do and until you finally get to the point where final pages, at which point, of course, you hate the novel and who wrote this rubbish and how embarrassing that it's going to be out in the world, which is a general vibe when we were about to have a book out. And then, of course, there's the week it comes out you just want to hide under a mushroom and go, I'm really sorry, everyone. <laughs> what was I thinking? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Various waves one rides through the process. Yeah, does that answer your question? Like it was a bit of a, it was very yeah, yeah, planned. No. It's very easy to write because it was planned, but but I don't know whether I personally, it's a very joyous novel, which was very much in response to all the rubbish going on in the world, but equally yeah, as I say, I still haven't made up my mind about what's the best way forward. But I, I did a really big plan for the fence as well and it worked really well for the fence. So maybe it just depends on the kind of novel you're writing at the time. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, that's not really giving you a definitive answer there, no, is it? it doesn't have to be definitive. No, I think it's just an interesting thing to explore. But what about, so you, you're on the book a year roundabout now, I would say. Would that be the foreseeable future? Yeah. 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 Anna, my publisher at HarperCollins, she's very much very excited that, that I've got, I'm about to go into structural edits for the next one and I know what the next one is. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know if it will be a book a year forever, but it's certainly an interesting process to go through. And it's what's really interesting from the writer's point of view, because you always get told, you know, never hand in a first draft, always hand in your best homework. But when you're on that sort of book a year treadmill, it's not quite the same way. Like I had did hand in my first draft of the tricky art and I did hand in my first draft of the next one, evocatively called Title Three, because we can't decide on a title yet. And uh, but then the editorial resources that are throwing that are thrown behind that means that you've got more mm. support to actually uh, get the book up to the level it needs to be at. Having said that, ideally in the world I'd like the two to three drafts before my publisher saw it. But then again, the flip side of that is, for instance, with the feedback on this one, was that she wants me to bring the second half of the book to the front and change the way the second half of the book works. So imagine if I'd gone to all this effort to structurally edit it the way it is at the moment, potentially, and then she goes, no, I want to reverse it. So you cut out that middleman a little bit when when they're working with you intensely to get the book out ASAP. That's right. And of course... With each book you write, you're building on your skills. You've got more experience and the writing itself in terms of the way it looks on the page is generally easier to spruce up, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And she and she actually said, like, each, each and every scene is fantastic. It's just whether we want to change the tension of the novel by doing it this way instead of that way and do we put this extra scene in about this particular thing and, yeah, so it's got multiple uh, points of view and it's multiple timelines so it it could be potentially off the rails but then that's the other thing too like you say like writing dressmakers which was such an ensemble piece gives you more confidence that you can write from multiple points of view and, and different timelines and mm-hmm. different people having control of a scene and all that, that I mean you these are skills you pick up as you develop as a writer. And so you should be continually cha- challenging yourself, not just saying, oh, that worked last time, I'll just yeah. do it again. Yeah. And do you get much direction, Meredith, from your publisher in terms of this is the sort of thing we'd like you to do next? Or they're happy to just hand it over to you and say, yep, what have you got next? More the latter, although because I don't tend to write 
in a genre so much like I'm not like writing crime or romance so my storylines can be very or they are varied and I've always been told by both my existing publisher and my previous publisher that the the sort of because I asked that very question about well hang on a minute these books are very different and what readers if come to expect that you're going to write, say, something funny like The Fence and then they pick up something like Christina, which is not funny. How's that going to work? And they were very much, it's more your voice. People mm. are responding to how you write not and how you approach your subjects rather than a thematically, you're looking for a thematic link. So that's kind of good because I don't, I'm not the kind of writer who does want to write the same sort of stories all the time. But having said that, with my new publisher, she's very much, and both my old publisher and my new publisher are friends, so that's interesting too. But with my new publisher, she very much sees me as someone, as she calls it, with heart books that are gritty but pretty or she says more heart you're always being told more heart more humor if you looked at dressmakers in an initial in the initial drafts before Anna got her hands on it it was less humorous than the final version of it yeah I tend to go very dark and even with the one I'm writing at the moment it's very dark so one of my jobs in the editing process is just to lighten it up a little bit Mm. and just bring in those heart and humor type things which I don't tend to do on a first couple of rounds I tend to be very focused on my big issues and the darkness and then I come back and backfill with all the the stuff that makes it feel good fun stuff yeah yeah (laughs) so what sort of changes do you feel or have you had to make to your daily routine to your life in general in order to accommodate having the next book out and then the next book you have to be really disciplined (laughs) Mm. that's that's the really big thing so you have to like I know a lot of authors who do this I'm surely not telling anyone anything new but I have an excel spreadsheet I know when the novel has to be handed in I know roughly how long a novel takes to write so 10 to 12 weeks I divide that by the number of five days a week knowing damn well I won't do five days a week it'll end up being six or seven but anyway to make up for the fact I didn't do the five (laughs) but Divide it by five days a week and you go, roughly speaking, if I write 2,000 words a day, five days a week, in three months, I'll have 100,000 words, which works really well as long as you don't write 120,000 or you do actually do your five days a week. So there's that element of actually being disciplined about turning up uh, and writing. And I tend to write in 25, 30-minute blocks and then have a break throughout the day just to – because you need to let – your brain needs to actually – process what you're doing and so stepping away to go make a cup of coffee or hang a lot of washing on the line or whatever um, gives you that little bit of breathing mental breathing space so you can go oh yeah of course she'd do this next or I know she shouldn't have done that because that's not going to work and so you can come back to it so that also so when I'm writing those 2,000 words a day I'm also editing so I'll always start today by reading what I did yesterday or starting from the top of the chapter or whatever the relevant sort of section break is, or I might even be looking at those three chapters together so that there is a sort of level of editing to make sure there's continuity there. So when I say I hand in a first draft, it's not literally the rubbish on the page. page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's been, I've edited each chapter, you know, probably two or three times in that process of writing. So I tend to start the day and that gets my mind back in the game. Start the day with the editing yesterday's work and then then you flow into the adding the words for that day. So when I say, oh, 2,000 words a day, really it's probably more than that because I'm already editing what I did the day before. So, yeah, it's just a matter. And if I don't 
get my 10,000 words in a week done in those five days, then guess what, baby cakes, I'm back at my desk and mm. I'm doing the next bit. So there's, yeah, so you do need to be disciplined about that. The planning also helps. And we'll talk about the planning earlier, having a, a much stronger idea of who your characters are, who they are in relationship to each other, what your key plot points are, what your key, key story points are, so that you've actually got something to hang everything off. Mm. Um but you also obviously want to allow for some, some spontaneity. Like, for instance, in the one I'm writing at the moment, a character appeared um, that I really love and she's just made the whole rest of the novel work so much more easily by having her there. So surprise, surprise, she wasn't in my plan. But she, I'm really glad that she's there and I think she's a fantastic character. Yeah, you, I think that's the main thing. And I think I am a great multitasker like most mums because you've, when you're raising kids, you have to be. But I think part of the, I have the opposite issue now where I really need to be focused. So mm -hmm. the other thing I really try and do is if I'm going to write, I write in the mornings, don't put any other appointments in my diary until after two o'clock in the afternoon and just you've got to be dedicated about that time that you need yeah. to sit at your desk and actually create. And as starting out can be, most people can do the first 30,000 30, odd words and, you know, kind of lovely rush of, because, you know, and then there's all the self-doubt creeps in and go, what is this rubbish? And you have to get through the mucky middle and then you have to resolve it all. It comes in waves and stuff, but I think the discipline element's really important because if you only wrote when you felt that you had something to say, you probably would only write a third of the time. Mm -hmm. You have to write through the icky bits and the connecting scenes and the and figuring out what the hell's going on when you've got no idea. Because by the time you start the editorial process and you feel I always filter upwards I don't know why but filtering the whole story down to the page the finished product that goes out to a bookstore it is that you have to go through layer by layer and actually go sometimes you're looking at character and we all have different strengths and strengths and weaknesses too mm -hmm. don't we you're looking at your character you're looking at your dialogue you're looking at your motivations you're looking at the heart and humor so you're looking at like how is my reader going to connect with their how with their own experiences and so there's you can't possibly edit everything all at once. You need to focus on different kinds of things and try to get it happen. But I, ultimately, I'd have to say you just have to be pretty disciplined. That's the number one thing. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking before we started recording about then having to bring things back in that you've let go because you are being so disciplined, so exercise and downtime mm -hmm. and things like that. It's such a balance, isn't it? It is. Look, I really made a point once I was getting on to, probably at the beginning of last year, of really getting back into my running routine. I used to run and then I didn't and then it's really easy just to flop on the couch and read a book and all that kind of stuff. And so now I'm really, I'm trying to be, well, it's been a bit hard with all this rain because even I have my limits, but um, trying to be a lot more disciplined about incorporating exercise into my weekly routine as a way of counteracting all the sitting, absolutely. Mm. All that oxygen flooding into your brain is so good for your creativity. I'm also really a meditator. So when I wake up in the mornings, I always meditate for half an hour and that's really important for my creative well that I spend some time meditating I don't necessarily having said all the stuff about excel spreadsheets and putting your bum in the seat five days a week if I'm having a day where I really am not feeling the love for writing I do find it better just to take a day off and have a reading day and just let myself rest and let myself because you know creative what's well, very easy for it to run dry yeah. and reading is a great you know excuse for any writer and we should all be reading 
broadly and lots of it. For some people, it could be gardening. For some people, it could be going for a horse ride. For some people, it can be their pottery class, whatever the thing is. But you do need to actually rest your creative mind as well and refill and let nurture it. So the running is is not so much about, because if you saw what I look like from the waist down, I don't even oh, look I think like we all do that on Zoom, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't look like a runner, but the, the important thing to me is just that, that getting out and mm. running and fresh air, sunshine. I've got to take the dog with me. She thinks it's a hoot and just get away from it all and actually have that. And I think sunshine, time in nature, all that kind of stuff is really good for your mental health. Mm. And that, of course, then flows into your writing because everything mm. we do as writers really comes from our brain. It doesn't, mm. doesn't come from anywhere else. Definitely. And have you noticed, Meredith, this time around, like with these two books and, and new publisher and everything, what's been different for you with these two books? Um, I guess maybe thinking around social media and things like that or things that you've had to do as an author that you may not have had to do as much of we around the first time around with those first two books. Has, has anything changed in that sphere? I think lots of things change and it's not just because you've changed publisher though I think like we all go into being published and especially when we get our first ever contract it's oh my god oh my god we're going to be published it's so exciting and it's a finally I feel validated I can do it I can write yay you know all that kind of stuff so I don't think it would matter who you were with <laughs> for the for the first book or two you just so yes whatever you say I'll do it yes about everything that a publisher throws at you what you learn and this irrespective of publishers, I would say, what you learn is, hang on a minute, this is my work, my story to tell. And you learn to push back a little bit about some of the editorial suggestions. You, you learn to stand up for yourself a little bit more. You're not peachy keen. You're not in love anymore. You, you love, but you're not in love. And so I do think there's an element of just maturing as a writer that you are more prepared to stick up for stuff that you think is really important for the book, irrespective of... And then, then you might have a stout about it and lose, don't get me wrong, <laughs> because ultimately it's their book as well. They're investing in you to write that book. In terms of personalities, I... I used to read, I always read acknowledgements. I don't know about you, but I do I'm a, too. first like, thing I read I can, when I get a book. <laughs> like, like I'll read line. like Yeah, like I'll read like the first paragraph or the first chapter and go, right, now I need to read the acknowledgements and find out what's going on. And I always was quite in awe of, and I'm not going to name names here, but I was quite in awe of some very famous and successful writers that you and I know personally who would gush about their publisher and how amazing their relationship was and they couldn't do it without them and they were the best person in the universe. And I was like, wow, that's interesting because I didn't have that kind of relationship with my pe previous house. And I was kind of like, well, what she's having kind of thing and, and you know, what's she doing that I'm not doing? And then I, and ultimately it just comes down to the same stuff we already know. You just connect with people differently. Mm. And I think if you find that connection with your publisher and you personally really like each other and get each other and feel that there's respect for the work as well as chat, like I love being challenged. I'm not one of those people who crawls in, you know, crawls in a hole and dies at the slightest bit of criticism about my work. I've been writing for too long to worry about that. But to have someone who's championing you 
but also questioning like all that kind of good stuff, like yeah, the really yeah. positive, creative energy that's coming to the project. Because after all, when you write past your first couple of books, they are projects. They're not your baby, they're your project. And you look at any bo- person's body of work, it's, pick your favourite author. I bet you, you don't love every single thing they've ever written. Mm. Or, or at least you don't love every single thing they've written equally. You'll go, oh, no, my favourite book of theirs is this one yeah. or whatever the case may be. But we all have to you know, suck it up a bit and go, some of our work will not always be of an equal standard. Some will be more standout than others. Sometimes, as we well know, some people's book just picks up on the zeitgeist and it becomes a mega hit because everyone just wants that book at that moment in time type stuff. So you, in order to weather all those different storms, you need to you need to have a really good and trusting relationship with the person and people that you're working with. Because after all, the publisher is only the front person of the entire team that's sitting behind them doing all the hard yakka. So my publishing house is HarperCollins. The fiction publishers believe in doing all their structural edits themselves as the publisher and then there'll be an overriding editor that then picks up on the structural copy proof final pages elements of the process. You're not just working with one person. That is the person who goes to the sales meetings and go, please buy the next book by Meredith Jaffe because it's wonderful and it's this, that and whatever. I don't know if that's what she really says, but let's hope that's what she says. And then the sales team will look hard at your numbers and the marketing team look hard at the hook and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it is a collaboration to be published, whereas writing, as we know, is largely a fairly solitary process with maybe a little bit of input from writing buddies or whatever. So I I do think that feel in, in this, I've matured as a writer, I've matured as a person, and I'm with someone that gets me and gets my work, and and that is probably the fundamental difference because I haven't changed genre or anything. I'm still writing the same way and the same yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's not like I, I totally get it when someone says I used to be a crime writer and now I want to write historical fiction or whatever. And then they go, great, how about you do your historical fiction with this publishing house and your children's books with that publishing house or whatever. It, 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 there isn't a, a set formula for these things, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you do have now a fantastic writing studio, don't you, Meredith? Can't let you go without asking you about that. That must be fantastic <laughs> to actually step inside that and just have that space purely for the writing. It's fantastic for lots of reasons. So as it was born out of the Currawan fires in 2019-2020 when our the, the guy who'd done our building work on our extensions was twiddling his thumbs because despite the fact so many people had lost houses etc there was a real stasis in the area at the time and no one was really doing any work blah 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 so I came home and said to my husband we need to help him and he said why don't we build a studio and I went no no I mean like we should we must have other jobs that we haven't quite finished off he said well, we've got all this leftover stuff in the shed why don't we just build your studio so that's what happened the best thing there's two best things about it one actually having a place to come to work So when I'm in the studio, I'm working, I'm not faffing, I'm here to do my job. Yes, as because you've seen it, like I've got the fantastic views back over the valley and I can see the Great Dividing Range and I've got cows outside my window as we speak. So, you know, mentally it's a really healthy place to be. But also my husband works at home and always has pre-COVID. So 
there's no distractions like listening to him on a business phone call. Like I know you've been here, Pam, with your husband. Or you're sitting there going in a caravan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you're sitting there and you go, and so the next scene, I really need and then you hear, no, mate, I I reckon it's a 30 June deadline or nothing. You know, and then you go, shut up. Exactly. I'm trying to create here. So I think it's really helpful to be able to cut. And some people can't, some people need the coffee shop environment. I don't know how you write in a coffee shop, but I need to come to a place where I'm in the zone. Mm. And the other thing I love about it, because I still have some teenagers at home, is seriously the stationary nicking that goes on <laughs> when I used to work in the house. And like most writers, I have my favorite pens and I have them in different colors and all this kind of stuff. It's like, can we go, oh, what's happened to my pen or my pencil's this gone or whatever. Everything's been moved, shuffled, borrowed, never to be seen again. And currently with my 16-year-old daughter, also that also applies to all my makeup. I went to put lipstick on the other day, no lip pencils, none, all gone. Thank you, Matilda. And I was, yeah, and I went to her, where are my lip pencils? I haven't got them. She's at work today, so I snuck in there and went, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, took them all back and put them back in my makeup bag. So, yeah, there's also that sort of sense of because maybe it's because I'm an only child, that real sense of like, it's mine. But it is like when you're, you'd know this, the the girls having pretty much left home is that something is where you left it last time you saw it, Mm. which is a really magic thing about having a studio is it might be an absolute mess and it is at the moment, but at least it's my mess and I know where things are in the mess. Whereas when you've got other people and also the interruption thing, like I actually have said to my kids, especially my son, you know you know how Liz Gilbert talks about her mum having a sign on the door saying, unless you're on fire, go yeah. away kind of thing. <laughs> well, I keep threatening him with that sign going, when I'm in the studio, I am working not to be disturbed. I have a break every half an hour or so and I usually come up to the house. That's when you come and ask me a question like, you're 14, you're too old to be just immediately needing a response to everything. So, yeah, unless you're on fire, go away. <laughs> No, I can relate to that. Everything you said, and in fact, I swear I've been missing an eyeliner since my daughter's engagement party a month ago. But nobody claims yeah, no, no one ever it was. sees it. <laughs> no one has it, and yet, damn well, that in another few weeks you will find said eyeliner. Yeah, It'll either be someone's... miraculously turned yeah. to your makeup bag behind your back, or you'll notice it and go, "Oh, really? I didn't even know you used that brand." <laughs> exactly. So yeah. <laughs> Lots of bonuses. (laughs) We've covered a lot of things, but there is something I'm meant to ask you when we're talking about the tricky art of forgiveness. So I'm going to go back to that just quickly. It's got a fabulous uh, list at the back of music and music is incredibly important to the story. And of course, you touched on this idea that Diana is a music teacher. She's had a career as a singer. She's a beautiful singer. Can you talk a little bit about the way music has been filtered through the story? Because I thought that was a fantastic addition to the book. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. I wanted Diana to be glamorous and gorgeous and all the things I'm not. And one of the things I would always love to have been is I would love to be able to sing like Aretha Franklin or, you know, Ella Fitzgerald or Peggy Lee or any of those kind of people. Just open your mouth. Have you ever noticed when Aretha Franklin sings, the microphone's about 10 foot away from her mouth because she's got such such I'll vocal range. Yeah. She, she, yeah, she, she doesn't hold it up close to her face at all. So there, there was a, so like one of the great things about being a, a fiction writer is you get to create characters, aspirational characters, shall we say. And, and so as you say, she was in a band in her early 20s called Diana 
piano and the somethings and they sang a lot of really great Motown classics and a, a real blend of that sort of 50s, 60s, really cool music. And I don't know if you remember, Pam, when we were in our 20s, early 20s, that Motown had a really big resurgence when in, in the late, in the mid 80s to yeah. the late 80s. And, yeah. and so we were listening to a lot of these Motown classics and as well as that, I grew up in a really, uh, well, when my children are musicians, but when I say I grew up in a musical household, I, my, my parents were really into music. So they were always, and they were very good dancers. So there was always, you know, Stevie Wonder and Burt Bacharach and Cleo Lane, Peggy Lee, the whole shebang, always on the stereo. And my parents were always dancing. So I grew up in a world where that was normal and all of that sort of filters through your brain doesn't it as a writer and so I just created Diane I thought no she can be in a covers band but a really cool covers band mm. and so and so she where she gets to wear lots of sequins and and mini skirts and and look amazing and yeah, because that's what her background was, I should also say that that Will, when she first meets, when she's in the band, Will's her husband, that he's quite jealous of her relationship with the boys in the band and mm. being up on stage and all of that too. But you can't possibly have had that life and it wouldn't filter through with you, that you wouldn't. She goes on, when the kids are little, she goes on to start teaching singing and piano because she wants to have something to do that's for herself. And so she that's how she becomes a music teacher. She's done the degree that she thought she'd never use and now she's amazingly using this degree to teach kids to sing and then that evolves into her becoming the a music teacher at the high school or the college and the choir mistress for that school. But... So music is still there, but what she really misses in her later life, in the woman she is now, what she really misses is the sense of connection she used to have with the audience mm. and that sense of bringing joy to people and bringing and moving people emotionally through music and song. And that really is a metaphor for where she is in her life at this point in time. Um, is that she's given up the joy uh, in, in her life to focus mm. on the doing. And, yeah, it's really important part of Diana's story and Diana and Will's story as well. So when you publish a book, to get to the second half of your question, is you have this thing called end pages. So they publish in, I think it's in blocks of four. So depending how many words you've written by the time it's typeset, it will have, you know, say it's I'm not going to do the math say it ends up yeah, with yeah, five yeah. or six pages that are blank at the end of the book then the publisher generally if you all go and have a look you'll see this your publisher will generally fill it with something so in this case we had quite a few end pages so even by the time you did the acknowledgements the author note type stuff and so they put an ad in for the dressmakers of Yarrandara prison still plenty of space so I said why don't we put the playlist from the novel mm. as a separate thing and QR code it now as we all know, we're all quite au fait with QR codes now, but I did not realise that the publisher had never put a QR code in a book. And they're like, yeah, I'm sure we can do that. I said, oh, go and ask the digital marketing team. I'm sure they know how to do it. Otherwise, I know people who know how to do it kind of thing. But yeah, so we, so I went through the whole manuscript and pulled out every single song that's mentioned or played in the novel and we put it all at the back with a QR code. So I then had to create the Spotify, obviously they had to create the Spotify playlist so you, the to link to the QR code so that people can actually listen to it. And I'm amazed how many people have contacted me to go, I'm listening to the soundtrack right now wow, kind of so thing. And then the other thing is there's a song in the book as well, which I'm not going to talk about too much because that will be a spoiler. So imagine my surprise when local musician Hayden Cooper and his wife, Wolf Black, turn up at my book launch with a keyboard and a mic and play 
and they had put the whole thing to music and actually yeah. played the song from the title of the book at the launch party, which you can see on my Instagram page if people are, are interested mm. in looking for it. But So apparently that's going into the studio to be turned into a real song. So let's oh, just stay tuned for that one. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think it's, I think for all of us, like music in various parts of our life, just you can hear a song from when you broke up with someone and yeah. you still go, oh, oh so remember that or, yeah. yeah. And so I think that there's obviously amazing books like Daisy Jones and the Six where it is about being in the band and that mm. whole journey. But this was not about that element of it so much as how music resonates with different periods in our life and and can move us to tears mm. or make us laugh or take us back to a place that we've been so easily just so yeah, like yeah. smells can as well you smell cut grass and it immediately makes you happy for most yeah. people that kind of thing yeah it was more about the emotional tone of the novel more than anything else but I just wanted and part of the joy because like I said I mean the we'd had the Corowin fires we had COVID we'd had drought we'd had the fire mm-hmm. before the Corowin fire like I just needed to run away <laughs> I needed, yeah, and yeah. I wanted to go to a place of joy and spending time with with Diana in this novel and the music and the storyline was actually about that joy, being in a joyous place. Mm. I, I call I call it a romantic drama. That's what they call the movie or and the book, uh, Love Story, the classic movie yeah. with Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. And it's not a happy movie, but we all love that movie because it's just, oh, my God, what happens? So it is, it's not designed to be anything like dressmakers or anything Mm. like my previous books. It's just a moment of joy in a time when we're all a bit over real life. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I would like life to be a lot nicer than than for many of us it really is. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's a perfect place to end because it's exactly what the book does. So thank you very much for the chat. Lots oh, thank you for having me, letting me gas bag. Oh, no, you know me. I'm always up for a gas bag. So where can people find you online, Meredith? So my website, and particularly if you want to see which events I've got coming up, because I've got quite a few coming up in the next couple of months. So website is meredithjaffe.com and Instagram is Meredith Jaffe author, as is Facebook. So pretty easy to find. There's not too many Meredith Jaffe's around. Yeah, and I'll put all that in the show notes too. And, of course, you and I are going to be chatting about the book again at the South Coast Writers' Festival in June. We sure are. I can't wait in the wonderful Wollongong Town Hall. So that'll be amazing for all the people who are local up there. And I had a look at the program uh, only the other day and it's a fantastic lineup. Mm-hmm. So well worth jumping on to see the South Coast Writers' Centre Festival just generally because there's some amazing people that will be there. Yeah. Us yeah. included, of course, Pam. <laughs> oh, of course. All right. I will let you get back to your editing and your lovely studio and we'll catch up soon. Oh, yes, we will. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bye now. Meredith. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week 
And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. 